before introducing tonight's speaker, let me just give a little context. The Athenaeum has for decade, a decade now generously fostered uh, its members' interest in Marcel Proust, uh, initially under retired director Paula Matthews, and now uh, continued under her successor, director Elizabeth Barker. Being a local center for the appreciation of what is perhaps, or who is perhaps uh, the greatest of France's writers, uh, has been a drawing card for recruiting new members to the library. And new members, of course, are always welcome both to the library and to the Proust group. So uh, tonight's lecture is the latest in a series of Athenaeum events honoring Marcel Proust. Uh, those who spent much uh, of last year anticipating the release of tonight's book, Chasing Lost Time, The Life of C.K. Scott Moncrief, and I was certainly one who anticipated it for a number of months. Uh, Moncrief, uh, Scott Moncrief, Proust's first and I think still best translator. Uh, we were richly rewarded by our speaker's fine biography of this extraordinary man. Time has only burnished his many achievements, uh, which were not confined to translation, as, as you will hear if you do not already know. Uh, at the outset, um, his translation of Proust was recognized as a very fine piece of work, uh, particularly by notables uh, in the British uh, uh, literary world. In 1923, uh, less than a year uh, after Proust's death, a periodical called Nation and Athenaeum, which was uh, run by Leonard Wolfe and in which uh, appeared many of Virginia Woolf's uh, uh, essays, a review in that uh, had this to say about Swan's Way, and I quote, the quality of Mr. Scott Moncrief's translation of Du Côté de Chez Swan is nothing less than amazing. Had it not been done, it would have seemed impossible. But it has been done, and now the average English reader has a smooth road open before him into one of the most important books of our time. Monsieur Proust is a genius, and Mr. Scott Moncrief has treated him like one. So it was recognized early on. Tonight we, uh, we celebrate Jean Findlay's visit uh, here, and we honor Scott Moncrief, and in doing so, the Ath Athenaeum is today welcoming uh, an addition to its shelf of original editions of Scott Moncrief's translations. They're right here, uh, and um, these are things that he did, as it were, with his left hand, while uh, with his right hand he was translating Proust and Pirandello and, and others. Uh, they'll be up front for inspection afterwards, should anyone wish to look at them. Now for our speaker, whom we're delighted to have here today, especially those who have already read her book, uh, Jean Findlay was born in Edinburgh and studied law and French at Edinburgh University, then theater at Krakow uh, with Tadeusz uh, Kantor, and she ran a theater company writing and producing plays in Berlin, Bonn, Dublin, Rotterdam, and the Pompidou Center in Paris. She has written for The Scotsman, The Independent, The Guardian, and Time Out. And she lives in Edinburgh with her husband and three children. She is also the great, great niece of C.K. Scott Moncrief. 
In her book, Chasing Lost Time, The Life of C.K. Scott Moncrief, Soldier, Spy, and Translator, Jean Findlay reveals aspects of Scott Moncrief's life that have, which have remained hidden behind the genius of the, uh, of the man uh, whose reputation he helped to build, namely Marcel Proust, introducing him to the English-speaking world very early on. Catholic and homosexual, a party-goer who, who was lonely deep down, uh, secretly a spy for Britain in Mussolini's Italy, publicly a debonair man of letters, a war hero described as offensively brave, whose letters from the front are remarkably cheerful. Scott Moncrief was a man of his moment, thriving on paradoxes and extremes. In Chasing Lost Time, Gene Findlay gives us a vibrant, moving portrait of the brilliant Scott Moncrief and of the era changing fast and forever in which he shone. Uh, Ms. Mrs. Findlay will take a few questions afterwards in a Q&A and uh, will uh, autograph copies of her book out in the bow room as is customary. So join me, if you will, in welcoming our speaker all the way from Edinburgh, land of David Hume, Gene uh, uh, Findlay. Thank you. Good evening, and thank you. Um, this story begins a long time ago. When I was at Edinburgh University, I wanted to write my final thesis on Proust. When an elderly uncle said, it killed Proust to write it, it killed C.K. to translate it, it might kill you to read it. C.K. was, the C.K. to whom he was referring was my great-great-uncle, Charles Kenneth Scott Moncrief, and he was known as C.K. because there were a lot of Charleses in the family. And I grew up with stories of him. My great-aunt Dorothy, who was his goddaughter, um, when she was old, I used to sit on her bed, and she showed me a piece of stained glass which he'd picked up from Ypres Cathedral, and also a ring which was made for him by um, a French officer out of a shell case. And she always kept his war medals framed in a glass box in her drawing room. She was also rather sad about him. She used to say, with a very grave expression on her face, he was a homosexual, you know. She had that accent, um, which went back to the 1920s. And um, my mother told me that when she was a child, she'd slept in an attic with a very dark portrait of him, which, with a rip in the canvas, which uh, was later mended and given to the National Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh. Um, years later, when I found myself unemployed with two small boys, my mother gave me the most valuable thing she had, which was a battered leather suitcase containing the forget forgotten letters, diaries, and notebooks of Charles Scott Moncrief. There is a new translation of Proust's novel, but it took seven translators seven years. That's 49 man-years. And Scott Moncrief spent eight years on this by himself, his translation was so inspired that some critics felt he was improving on the original. Joseph Conrad said that Scott Moncrief's version revealed something to him that Proust's did not. But there was more to him than that, I discovered. He was an influential player on the English literary scene. He was a man of contradictions, a decorated soldier as well as a poet, a Catholic convert and a lover of men. 
He explored these paradoxes in his own poems, written in pencil in the private notebook, which I now found in the suitcase. I took that suitcase to Chateau and Windus, who had been Charles's publishers, and they were as excited as I was. All I had to do, they said, was bring the man to life, take the man out of the suitcase. He is sitting in the middle of the middle row. Here, he's 26. He was already a first lieutenant. He had a degree in law and one in English literature. He had literary ambitions. His poetry had been published in literary periodicals since the age of 16. As a soldier, he was described as offensively brave. He would go on to win the, the MC, and unlike many of the other men in the photograph, he managed to survive the war and became a celebrated man of letters, writer, critic, and above all, translator of one of the most challenging works of literature of the 20th century, Proust's A la recherche du temps perdu. So who was he? He was a Scotland Creef, an ancient and distinguished Scottish family which he himself could trace back to the 11th century. He knew all about his forebears. They were dominated by beautiful and forceful matriarchs who had very large families. His mother, who was known as Meg, was the first professional writer of the Scotland Creefs. As an adult, she wrote for Blackwood's magazine and had regular columns in Sunday newspapers as well as travel articles for the Scotsman on a six-month stay in Egypt. This was unusual for a woman in Scotland in the 1880s. Her husband, George, was a lawyer with literary sympathies. He had been at Edinburgh University with Robert Louis Stevenson, and he was a cousin of the physicist James Clark Maxwell. He was a true inheritor of the Scottish Enlightenment, when lively minds mixed in a country small enough for innovators in the arts and science to know each other. Charles was, Charles was born in this house, Weedingshaw, near Polmont in Stirlingshire, in 1889. It is almost untouched since 1889, and I visited it. It has been a children's home, and it's now actually threatened with demolition by Falkirk Council, who want to build a super new plastic school in its place. I tried to get it protected by Scottish Heritage, but for some reason it doesn't qualify so I hope that this rather lovely building will be saved by somebody. But anyway, in this house, Meg brought up her three sons, Colin, John, and Charles. From an early age, she read to them from Ruskin, George Eliot, Jane Austen, Robert Louis Stevenson, as well as all the great poets. Every Christmas, they recited Milton's Ode on the morning of Christ's nativity, and Charles learnt it by heart. Now here is the first clue and the first connection of him to Proust. Because when he first picked up Proust, he read this sentence. It's only one sentence, so you'll be here for the rest of the evening. <laughs> one sentence from Proust. <laughs> it's about his mother uh, reading to him as a child. And uh, it's about words. She came to them with the tone that they required, with the cordial accent which existed before they were, which dictated them, but which is not to be found in the words themselves, and by these means she smoothed away, as she read on, any harshness there might be or discordance in the tenses of verbs, endowing the imperfect and the preterite with all the sweetness which there is in generosity, all the melancholy which there is in love. 
guided the sentence towards that which was waiting to begin, now hastening, now slackening the pace of the syllables so as to bring them, despite their difference of quantity, into a uniform rhythm and breathed into this quite ordinary prose a kind of life, continuous and full of feeling. So Charles was educated like this at home until he was eight, by which time the family was living in Inverness in the north of Scotland. Then he was sent boarding at 11, but it was a school built and run by his aunt and uncle called Alton Burn, just outside Nairn. It was near the beach, and the vivid landscape inspired his translations from Latin and Greek. He was so good that he won a scholarship to Winchester College. Uh, he is at the back, on, on this side. Winchester was one of the nine schools recognised in the Public Schools Act, which provided Britain with its ruling class and a scholar at Winchester was considered the academic cream. Scholars lived apart in a medieval stone keep in the central court. They ate like courtry knights at an ancient oak tables in a stone hall hung with dark portraits and wore gowns to distinguish them from the rest. Charles, as a Scot, had an historical prejudice against the English to overcome, while the English boys had an inbuilt indifference to Scots and an assumption of superiority over any other race. Plus ça change. <laughs> Charles's parents, though comfortable, earned their own living, and their wealth was nothing compared to the truly rich of Edwardian England. This is a picture of the cricket pitch. He appreciated that dream, the dreamy beauty of the place and threw himself into books. His housemaster said of him while he was sick, Scotland Creef is the kind of boy who is quite happy in bed if he has plenty of literature, only it must be literature. Schoolwork was undiluted Latin and Greek, but Charles read ten volumes a week of novels, poetry, essays. As well as classics, there was Houseman, Walter Pater, Oscar Wilde, and G.K. Chesterton. His elder brother, Colin, after a scholarship to Oxford, trained as a curate in London's East End, where Charles said he whirled around in his black gown, hurling soup tickets through windows. Colin invited his teenage brother to London to visit him but had no time to entertain him. So Charles spent long hours browsing the second-hand bookshops on the Charing Cross Road. And here, like Pinocchio meeting the cat and the fox, by chance he met Robert Ross and Christopher Millard, friends and disciples of the late Oscar Wilde. Robert Ross had a house on Half Moon Street off Piccadilly, which was a haunt for a literary and homosexual coterie. It had gold wallpaper and fine paintings, and Ross gave out Turkish delight. At 16, Charles wrote and dedicated a poem to Robert Ross, which was published in the literary periodical called The Athenaeum. Christopher Millard was Ross's sometime secretary. He was 20 years older than Charles, a tall, attractive man, Oxford-educated, and described as the sort who couldn't resist when out on a walk leaping a hedge and raping a ploughboy. He was also a Catholic. Catholicism offered the forgiveness for homosexuality that society did not. Millard was imprisoned twice for homosexual offences in prisons where conditions were extreme and harsh. He had a huge influence on Charles, which lasted the rest of his life. For a start, he could never tell his parents or school that he was visiting the disciples of Oscar Wilde. This was the first of many lies. 
Charles wrote masses of poetry and set up a school literary magazine called The New Field, in which it was published. In these poems, he revered, revealed a tortured soul and an awareness of sin. In his final year, he wrote a short story called Evensong and Morwisong, a title taken from Chaucer. This is a short excerpt. And if we are found out, asked Morris, he was still on his knees in the thicket, and as he looked up to where his companion stood in an awkward, fumbling attitude, his face seemed even more than unusually pale and meagre in the grey, broken light. It was with rather forced nonchalance that Carruthers answered, Oh, the sack, I suppose. And he stopped, aghast, at the other's expression. Then, as had only at one other time in a long and well-rewarded life, did he feel that a millstone around his neck might perhaps be less offensive than the picture of those small, startled features hung for all eternity before his eyes. The story was not erotic. It was about snobbery, hypocrisy, the public school system, and the fact that among adolescent boys, homosexual acts were not uncommon. The older boy becomes a headmaster and is just about to punish a child for a sexual offence when he remembers that he has done the same as a boy. And into his mind floated a picture of two boys in a thicket, the one's charming nonchalance of terror sickening the other, a child that had just lost his soul. The story was shocking enough for the magazine to be withdrawn and pulped. In the character of the headmaster, Charles had painted a recognisable portrait of a Winchester master. He was in trouble. He'd hoped to go up to Oxford to try for a scholarship like his brother, but the entrance required both a competitive exam and a good report from the headmaster, and he never got the good report. Instead, he went to Edinburgh University to study law and continued to write poetry, some of which won competitions in the Westminster Gazette, competing with the as yet unknown Rupert Brooke, who also used pseudonyms. Charles was handsome and popular, and also attended balls and parties with girls with whom he had friendships and flirtations. He finished his law degree and began a degree in English literature under Professor George Saintsbury, academic critic and man of letters. Later, as a critic, Charles was clearly influenced by Sainsbury's view that criticism is the endeavour to find, to know, to love, to recommend, not only the best, but all the good that has been thought and written about in the world. This was from Sainsbury. Um, he was very close to his family and always had summer holidays at the seaside. This is 1914, and he's with his extended family at the seaside. War came to everyone unexpectedly over the summer of 1914, a golden summer at the seaside with his extended family, and he, he is here at the back, uh, third from the left. He had an unusual attitude to war when he actually got out there. He enjoyed it. His letters, articles, and poems did not describe the horror but the camaraderie of the men, the beauty he found amongst the trenches, the characters of the French people he was billeted with, and he commented, there's something rather stimulating about being under fire. Of course, there was grief at the death of his friends, but he didn't dwell on it. He used poetry as an aid to endurance, both writing and reading it, and encouraged others to do the same. He lent his fellow officers his Oxford book of English verse and read and recited poems to his closest friends. 
one of these friends commented on his general behavior. I can see him strolling about no man's land, as cool as if he were on the parade ground, seeking information and the position of the enemy. On one occasion, he brought back, as a souvenir, a German sandbag. Dangerous work was evidently his strong suit. He used his poetic outlook to shield him from the horrors. It made him brave. It also made him see things that others did not. In one letter, he describes the animals at the front. The men have a parrot which imitates the whine of a spent bullet to the life. It is the only lower animal I have seen that seems to take an interest in the war. The little frogs are rather worried when they fall into a long and fairly dry trench. If they are dry and clean, I pick them up and throw them over my shoulders like golf balls. The big frogs in the water make an extraordinary noise, like a cable car passing. The songbirds are much puzzled by the bullets. There is a nightingale we often pass going to and from the trenches that sings all night to the bullets, wondering why they don't stop and join it on its bow. Then one year into the war, something happened that strengthened his protective shield even more. Charles had been brought up in a religious household. In fact, he said of the whole British expeditionary force, Christianity is a characteristic of our armies far more nearly universal than courage or cowardice or drunkenness or sobriety or chastity or the love of plunder. That was a portrait of the time. But Charles took another brave step. He decided to become a Catholic. Many in the British Protestant world still viewed Catholicism with a sort of fear and prejudice that was an historical inheritance of the Reformation, coupled with a sort of superior loathing for the Borg Irish. They saw the French as equally inferior with their louche and decadent mores and weak attitude to war. Protestantism was seen as altogether cleaner, brighter, more efficient. But Charles was impressed not by an idea, but by the behavior of individuals, by sharing the trenches with other Catholics and from small everyday experiences, not even the heroic or exceptional example. One great difference was that the Catholic priests were sent into line. They took over firing positions when necessary, and Anglican priests were forbidden to go beyond brigade headquarters. The result was that mass was said at the front line. The Church of Rome sent a man into action spiritually and mentally cleansed. Last rites were on tap in situ. He said, I found sooner or later that I was a Catholic. It wasn't anything to do with the sensuous appeal of music, but finally, at Rouen Cathedral at Pentecost, I felt quite sure that I was at home. <clears throat> it may have had something to do with Rouen Cathedral. It struck a note from his childhood when his mother would read Ruskin to him. Ruskin, in the seven lamps of architecture, said that, a, that as a building, Rouen Cathedral embodied sacrifice, truth, power, beauty, life, memory, and obedience. Proust translated Ruskin and said that he knew the seven lamps of architecture by heart. So here was another link. For the rest of the war, Charles felt protected by his poetry and invigorated by his conversion. He was also an able raconteur and a good mimic and kept his fellow soldiers amused. He started writing for The New Witness, a weekly magazine edited by G.K. Chesterton. But he only used his own name, C.K. Scotland Creef, for his reviews, which were long, rambling, and opinionated, often more about the purpose of literature than books under discussion. When critical, he was devastating, and the poets and writers did not always forgive him. His regular literary column was lively, ardent, and relentless. Much of this was done from a trench hall, base camps, or hospitals. 
who reviewed many books on the war and was savagely critical of most. He suggested that war played a trick on English poets, distorting their perspective, confusing their roles and exiling their muses. He maintained that real poets did not improve through war. If anything, they deteriorated. He attacked the emotion war inspired in poetry, its demolition of idealism, its degrading of human hope. But one poet he gave good reviews to was Robert Graves. From 1916, they developed a friendship and correspondence. And through a cousin at the war office, Charles secured for Graves a home posting, training troops in Wales. Charles believed that poets should be saved from war. Jake Graves would, ask, would write to Charles, asking him for advice on his poetry and for help in getting his poems into periodicals. However, on the 23rd of April, 1917, Charles got a shock. Monchy le Preux is a small town perched on a high knoll on a fertile plain near Arras on the Western Front. It was held by the Germans until that date when Charles, Charles's men dug into the freezing black sludge of their trench. Losses averaged at 4,000 a day on the Arras offensive. And the men showed reluctance, so he led them out. At 5 a.m. in the pitch dark, a British shell aimed at the German trench fell short and exploded in front of him. He fell, his left leg broken in two places with shrapnel in his right thigh. He lay on the battlefield, directing his men and urging them on until they overtook his position and claimed the German trench. He waited until well into daylight, wondering if he was going to be shot or die or to be found, until he was carried by stretcher back to the village. That German trench was never lost again to the other side for the duration of the war. In hospital, he translated a line from the poet Claudel. In the dim hour of life and death, when the slow agony is begun, and the soul scans with faltering breath that hard road whereby heaven is won. He was acutely aware at this point of the other world, of the sense that this earthly battle at Monchy was mirrored by the battle on another level for each man's soul. And he wrote his own poem about his wounding called The Face of Raphael. I, like a pailful of water thrown from a high window, fell alone. An hour or two I lay and dozed, my unattempting features closed, or opened a reluctant eye to search the irresponsive sky, not speaking, while my dull ears heard many a just-remembered word twine themselves into a song, tuneless. Here beginneth that old lesson, earth to earth turns and death regards birth. Nothing of us but doth fade utterly. Ah, whose mind prayed through mine then? Whose quiet singing heard I from my stretcher, swinging, sorry, weary, sick, belated back to Arras? Who dictated strongly, clearly, till I sung these French words with my English tongue? Initially, they thought he would have to have his leg taken off, as it would be so much work to repair, but somehow it remained, painfully, and he was shipped back to London, like a parcel with a luggage label, in a queue of other wounded men on jolting trains, drafty stations and a heaving ship. He landed in a temporary hospital in number 10 Carlton Terrace, the first floor drawing room with a view of the back of Downing Street. He was visited by his family and close, close friends, Robert Ross and the priest Ronald Knox. Soon he was recruited by the war office, where two of the Knox brothers also worked in intelligence. If he could not continue to fight the war with his body, he could at least with his mind. He could see the war office from Carlton House Terrace. It housed its largest staff ever, 
7,000 of them in 1,000 rooms. He started immediately in Section 4, Military Intelligence, under Major Claude Danzy. Charles was involved with this man in the discussions that developed the idea of using the British Passport Office as a cover for intelligence activity, which continued right up until after the Second World War. In January 1918, he was invited to Robert Graves' wedding, and there he met the shy, unpublished poet, Wilfred Owen. And he said, I met him again after dinner and found that we had already become, in some way, intimate friends. Charles was on crutches, with his leg in an iron truss. He was covered in eczema. Owen was 24, but his hair was already shot with grey. He'd just spent six months at Craig Lockett War Hospital in Edinburgh, suffering from nerves and shell shock. Both were mentally fragile. They discussed poetry. Charles started translating the Song of Roland, using assonance, which Owen himself was using in his own poetry. Over the next few months, Charles worked hard at the war office and had operations on his leg. Owen came, from Lon came to London for visits, staying at Robert Ross's rooms at Half Moon Street, and Charles fell in love with him. He wrote him love sonnets and letters, which Owen kept under in the English Faculty Library in Oxford. This is one. He also gave him a copy of his photo, taken at his most glamorous in 1913, which also Owen also kept. That's it. Owen was relying on Charles at the War Office to get him a home posting, like he had for Graves. However, Charles was not the last word at the War Office, and this was the final push to the front when all available manpower was required. So Owen was sent back out to France at the end of August 1918. Charles was determined to follow, and he told the medical team that his leg was no problem at all. He could walk cheerfully for three miles. It wasn't true. He applied to the press corps and got the post of assistant press officer covering the final stages of the war. It was an exciting position. He's given a car and drove around with journalists and cameramen making film, and newspaper, film news and newspaper coverage, hoping always to drive over to see Owen. But Owen was killed seven days before the war officially ended. Charles did not hear of his death for several weeks, and when he did, he wrote a sonnet, which ended like a poem a man would write for his dead wife. I care not, not the glorious boasts of men could wake my pride were I in heaven with thee nor any breath of envy touch me when swept from the embrace of mortal memory. Beyond the star's light in the eternal day, our contented ghosts stay together. Back in London, Charles rented a house in Ebury Street, near another intimate friend, the young and unknown actor, Noel Coward. They spent time together writing satirical spoofs about the Sitwells, who they both thought were pretentious and their poetry bogus. Charles started a lifelong feud with the Sitwells, which appeared in newspapers, and Coward wrote an entire musical satirizing the Swiss family Whittlebot with a lady poetaster, Pernia Whittlebot, who wrote poetry very like Edith Sitwell's. Another friend, T.S. Eliot, privately called them the Shitwells. Charles got a job at the Times while his translations came out, The Song of Roland, Beowulf, and the first volume of Proust. He was not a shadowy or a mechanical translator. He was more like Olivier interpreting Shakespeare or Casals interpreting Bach. He took liberties from the very beginning with the title. 
He knew he couldn't find an English ambiguity, meaning time wasted and time lost, an evolving memory, and still reflecting the beauty of what the novel contained. So he chose a line from Shakespeare's Sonnet 30. When to the sessions of sweet, silent thought, I summon up remembrance of things past. He translated à la recherche du temps perdu as remembrance of things past. This horrified purists at the time and has done ever since. But Charles had other difficulties to do with the translation. Uh, at the time in France, typesetters were in short supply. Many of them had been killed in the war and those who were left were untrained. And so Proust's first volumes were published with an enormous amount of errors, typesetter errors. And if you think in French that if you uh, exchange a le for a la in a Proustian sentence, where the le or the la uh, could be an idea, then um, you get huge complications. So a lot of his translating was interpretation. And it's also the reason why people criticized him afterwards for making mistakes. But in 1922, his first volume of Remembrance of Things Past gained many admirers. Edmund Goss, Edward Marsh, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, who then published some of Charles's short stories in the Criterion. And then all of a sudden, in 1923, when Charles was the hub of literary life in London, when he knew and mixed with all the influential writers and editors, he left London and was to spend the rest of his life in Italy, moving around pensiones and up and down the coast at a strange speed. I had a great problem trying to find the reason for this. It seemed abrupt and arbitrary. It was only after six years' research that it became clear. I finally found his war office file in the National Archives. The note on the front cover, sometimes it's, it's what's missing that's more important. The note on the front cover states, files 1, 4, 5, 7, and 8 were destroyed in 1932. So it wasn't as if the entire thing had been burnt by accident, which a lot of war office files were. Um, these files had been deliberately filleted out and destroyed, whereas there were papers from the same files contained within it, and those related only to his wounding. Um, you could see, however, in the crossings out uh, that uh, the reference was MI, meaning military intelligence, or MI1C, which I discovered meant the Secret Service. MI6 was a later name. There were also clues in, later in his life in Italy in letters. In one letter to a friend, he let drop that he, invented, that he had invented the job of those at the passport control office. I also slowly discovered that many of his associates, was, his associates were spies. His letters were addressed to the British Passport Office, and for all of his translations, he used the diplomatic bag. He had the perfect cover of translator and journalist. Um, but apart from that, he was working incredibly hard translating. So he translated all these other books, as well as the uh, seven volumes of Proust. He didn't manage to translate the last one. He died before the last one was translated. He also loved Italy and enjoyed himself to the full. Uh, while he was living in Pisa, on the Arno, he bought a pet owl, which perched on the back of his sofa and stared with unblinking eyes. One evening he heard a bang from his bedroom and he wrote, 
I went in and found a very self-righteous little owl on the floor, looking like one of the older members of the Savile Club. I find it very invigorating to have a strong character battling against my own. I can always quell her by wrapping her in a coloured cotton handkerchief. She tucks in her claws and pretends to be dead. Another tip from my friend Fredo was, don't liberate her at night or she will excavate you the eyes. A grim thought. He stayed in Italy for the rest of his life. He lived in a stylish manner and translated at great speed. He was passionate about the work of Pirandello, and when Chatter and Windus were reluctant to publish them, he reminded them that he had advised them to purchase the rights to Noel Coward's plays, and they had regretted not taking that advice. Now he was advising Pirandella, and they did take the advice. In 1934, Pirandello won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Even when dying painfully of stomach cancer, he was corresponding with many friends, in particular with Vivian Holland and T.S. Eliot. G.K. Test Chesterton came to visit him on his deathbed in, in Rome and sat on his bed and read the Iliad to him in Latin. D.H. Lawrence made kind inquiries after him, and his final visitor was Evelyn Waugh. This visit from Evelyn Waugh was so exciting that afterwards he wrote, I've been sent to bed like a, a whipped dog by the nuns for vomiting again, but a man must have some outlet for his passions. Also, at this time, when he was dying, he made the only political statement that he ever made in his entire life. He learnt of the early days of the Scottish National Party, which the Observer called Proud and Narrow. And his reply was, Granted that we are proud, is it not well that we should be taught to have something to be proud of? Granted that we are narrow, should we not be widened? The Scots are quite as capable of governing themselves as the Swiss, and have as much right as they to do so. Representative government may be a good or a bad thing, but it should be representative. I would cheerfully see all parliaments abolished, as they are the most mischievous institutions, but so long as they exist, Scotland ought to have one, and so ought England. Charles Scott Moncrief died on the last day of February 1930. He was buried in the Verano Cemetery in Rome in a communal grave according to his wishes. I didn't put that on. That's him living in Italy. Um, and after I'd finished the book, this is the big surprise story at the end. After I'd finished the book and handed it in, I discovered a stash of nearly 500 size of letters and postcards, all from Vivian Holland, who is Oscar Wilde's son. And they, are, they, um, they date from 1910 to 1930. And they are funny, shocking, loving, and loyal, full of Rabelaisian adventures, banter, limericks, and details of his affairs. They are in French, Italian, Latin, Greek, German, and are an exercise to decipher. And they are X-rated. Vivian, who is uh, the one is smoking, so he's on... Uh, that side. You can tell I don't know my left from my right. <laughs> um, um, Vivian, being the son of Oscar Wilde, was determined to prove that he was heterosexual, and he had a string of mistresses. Charles would advise him on his mistresses, although he knew absolutely nothing about it, and tease him mercilessly about not being entirely heterosexual. So when I came across these, I thought, I can't really publish them without talking to Vivian's son, Merlin Holland who is Oscar Wilde's grandson and uh, who lives in France. 
And finally, I tracked him down and we met and I discussed the contents of the letters with him, which he hadn't really known about, and it's quite a shock to discover when you were about 60 that your father wasn't completely heterosexual. And then he finally said to me, he said, um, no, I don't have a problem with it, because all the skeletons fell out of the cupboard in my family with a gigantic crash in 1895. That was the Oscar Wilde trial. Um, so all of those letters were filleted. I had to rewrite the book suddenly very fast in two months. And Charles's sex life was put in at the last minute. They're particularly funny when he gets to Italy because he wrote about his adventures. And it reads a bit like a bedroom farce. Um, there's one other thing I'd like to say, and that is that um, <clears throat> all of, uh, throughout my period of research, I collected all his poems and his short stories and his war serials, all of which had been previously published in periodicals at the time. And I've put them together in this volume here, which is just coming out now. So um, Charles always wanted to find a title for one of his translations of Proust, that would fit on the spine of a book. And he always said that his own name was a serious inconvenience. And there is one of his short stories was called Ant. So I thought that that could actually even go <laughs> horizontally on the spine. Um, it's also, of course, short for anthology. And um, uh, you don't get that until you get to the story, which is entitled Ant. But um, you can get that online if you go on to... Um, the UK Amazon. It's not out in America yet. Well, thank you very much for listening to me. Um.